a New Orleans hospital after Hurricane Katrina is surrounded on all sides by several feet of water. The power is out. Rumors of the hospital being overrun by looters are circulating. Clinicians are forced to make deadly decisions. Welcome to ReachMD Book Club. I'm your host, John Russell. I'm with author Sherry Fink, and this is part two of our interview about the wonderful book, Five Days of Memorial. Sherry, welcome back to the program. It's a pleasure to be back. Thank you. For people who didn't catch part one, could you give a couple-minute overview over what happened at Memorial Hospital after Katrina? The situation was much as you described it, and the situation was that the storm hit, as people remember, in late August of 2005. The levees failed, drowning one of America's most beloved cities, and the waters rose around a hospital that had about 250 patients, about 2,000 people. Uh, Storm hits Monday morning, waters rise Tuesday morning. By Wednesday morning, all power had failed, including backup power. So we're just imagining what that would be like for the health professionals listening or for patients. All the tools of modern medicine that we so rely on in this country, suddenly unavailable. Helicopters were coming, but they could take only one or two patients at a time. And you had so, so many. Also, the helicopters came slowly and unpredictably. And as you mentioned, there were rumors of great violence going on in the city. People were afraid. Some patients whose medical care was disrupted by what happened began dying. There was a fear that others would follow, that not everybody might get out in time. And there were also pets in the building because in terms of willingness to report for work in a disaster, this hospital had improved that by allowing the healthcare workers to bring their pets. So there was a decision to euthanize the pets when people felt that they were not allowed to take them out. There were these precious spaces on boats that were boating up over to the water to get people out and these helicopters. Nobody was allowed to bring a suitcase, let alone a pet at first. And so a decision to euthanize the pets. And then this question about the suffering patients or patients who looked horrible or who people feared would die. And discussion began amongst people in the hospital. We're worrying about the suffering of the pets. Shouldn't we be doing something about the patients? Should we be putting them out of their misery? And ultimately, after the storm, it was found that this hospital had more deaths than at any other similarly situated hospital in the city. Some 45 bodies were carried out, and experts determined about 40 of those had died during or after the storm. And a rumor that perhaps some of these deaths had been intentionally hastened with morphine, Versed, or a combination. Roughly 20 patients received those drugs shortly before their death, 19 of them at least in a short time period that Thursday, September 1st, 2005. And so then I think where you wanted to pick up was with the investigation and ultimately prosecution of several health professionals. After the storm and after people kind of show up at the hospital and there's all these bodies, how does word get out that potentially not all these folks succumb to natural causes? It was the reporting of doctors and nurses who were at the hospital who were either participated in some of the discussions, participated in injecting some of these patients, or who who refused to participate and who perceived that the patient's deaths were being hastened, felt that that this was not a role that doctors or nurses should be involved in, thought that it was an ethical violation. And so they reported that to authorities. They reported that to the media. When the investigation started, were doctors and nurses and other people there as forthcoming with talking with the authorities as they should have been? Well, 
should or shouldn't, I think, is a question that's hard to answer. But at first, people were a bit concerned, obviously, about talking about this with the authorities. So the attorney general's office launched an investigation, and they looked at deaths in all hospitals, actually, and nursing homes. There were a large number of patients had died at a particular nursing home, and there was public outrage around the fact that at this particular home, this is not Memorial Medical Center, but a nursing home quite far from there, quite close to a set of levees that failed, the patients had drowned, and there were questions. Were the owners there? Did they abandon them? It turned out later they had been there, and there was pretty intense effort to rescue the people. There was an investigation that was launched to look at all deaths just by this Medicaid fraud control unit, which, as people may know, is tasked with looking at basically anything related to Medicare patients who might have died in a way or suffered in a way that wasn't appropriate or any kind of fraud. I mean, their mandate is quite large, and they're not usually actually looking at potentially criminal deaths or intentional killings. That's a very, very rare thing. And that was the unit, however, which was pressed into service. And so a number of investigators and prosecutors started to work. So they started with Memorial Medical Center when they got a fax, I believe, from the lawyer for one of the entities that leased a part of Memorial Life Care, a long-term acute care unit. There was this self-reporting by Life Care saying, we think that a number of our patients were given these drugs and died. And that launched this really massive year-long investigation where the investigators sat down with many, many, I think it was you know dozens of hospital staff members to try to find out what happened. And you're right, some of them refused to speak. Some of them said, you know, I'll come with my lawyer, but I won't answer any questions that could possibly incriminate me. There were attempts at deals between some of the lawyers for some of these health professionals saying the person I represent, this nurse, this doctor, whoever will speak with you, but only if you promise them immunity. And at that point, they weren't able to do that. And so there were people who didn't speak or who were not terribly forthcoming. In some cases, there were repeat interviews where people were willing to speak a little bit more as time went on. Was this something that was more kind of forensics driven? Because you could you could imagine if you're taking care of some of these people, we were just trying to make people comfortable by giving them morphine. We were giving them this drug or that drug. Was that a little bit of the feeling or did forensics kind of help separate of these 40 or so people who passed away who might have had less of a natural death? I think the forensics helped, and I think that there were a lot of several, actually, rounds of searches of the hospital where the investigators went in and a team, and they seized a lot of paper records, computer records, for as long as the computers lasted. And so they were really able to piece together a story, which then forensic pathologists took a look, and they took information from various places. So things like, what were the drugs found in the bodies? Then what were the times of the death? They had been documented that the placements of the bodies and the times of death had become pretty clear based on a pathologist at the hospital who kept a record of these. And then you also had the pharmacy, which continued functioning. They actually got an airdrop of drugs. And even if it was a scrap of paper, they had records of every single drug that was dispensed, or at least until the very end, and even including. So you had a record of patients being given small doses of morphine, benzodiazepines, other sedative drugs for comfort all along. And then suddenly you had prescription for massive doses of morphine for some of the patients. And you had all of these patients dying who had these drugs in their bodies who didn't have any prescriptions or any records. And so the pattern and the fact that 19 or 20 of them died all at once and were given these drugs apparently all at once really is what some of the experts who weighed in on the case focused on. I think that the experts pieced together a variety of different evidence. They certainly didn't only rely on what a few 
health professionals said. What were their motives? It was really triangulating evidence. It was looking at forensics. It was looking at evidence and all different kinds of evidence put together. You're listening to ReachMD Book Club. I'm your host, John Russell, and we're speaking with author Sherry Fink about her wonderful book, Five Days of Memorial. Who ended up, did the attorney general decide to prosecute? The attorney general decided to prosecute three healthcare professionals to begin with, and he had hinted that more might be coming when he issued the warrants for their arrest. So this was about a year after the storm, a little less than a year after the storm and the investigation, and he had a doctor and two nurses arrested and accused of second-degree murder. So this caused quite a stir across the nation, really. So how did the city of New Orleans feel about a doctor and two nurses being prosecuted for second-degree murder? There was a pretty quick backlash. There was, as you can remember, this hospital and and the decisions that were made in this hospital occurred within a context of failure on multiple levels, governmental failure. Many reports by that point had come out about everything from the faulty construction of the levees to the slow and inadequate government-level rescue efforts. There were even failures on the level of the hospital corporation, which had a parent company that didn't immediately send aid that wasn't really set up to respond to one of its member hospitals being in a crisis. And then people didn't know about this, but there was even collapse of leadership even within the hospital. Heroic, wonderful efforts that saved many lives and many people in the leadership structure working hard, but there had been you know, just almost a total breakdown of patient care, of communications. Uh, obviously, the hospital infrastructure was compromised. And it turns out there was a knowledge amongst executives that the hospital had a vulnerability to lose power with flooding, as did many hospitals there and many across the nation, I should add, still have that vulnerability, a decision to shelter in place, and then the predicted loss of power. So I think there was a backlash because of the sense that with all the failures that occurred, why should three health professionals have to perhaps take the fall for everyone and perhaps go to jail for the rest of their lives, lose their licenses, not be able to do the work that they loved? There was a very aggressive understandably so, public relations and legal defense of these women, their names had already come out in the media, or at least the doctors had by that point. And so there was an active effort to feed the media with an alternative story about this. And so that landed with a lot of sympathy for these health professionals. And I should say, the real story of what had happened and what they had done wasn't out there. And many people who I spoke with at the time, because I followed the story, starting with shortly after those arrests, most of the people I spoke with in New Orleans believe that this did not even happen, that these were completely false allegations, that these healthcare providers hadn't provided the drugs to the patients that they were accused of giving. Did it ever go to trial? No, it did not. There was a grand jury that was convened to look at the case, and the two nurses were given immunity to testify against the doctor. Her case was presented before the grand jury, and the grand jury ultimately, after several months, decided not to indict her. So the aftermath of all these people. So the, the particular doctor involved, what is she still in New Orleans? Did she move on to some other place to practice? She's still in New Orleans. She was promoted. She's practicing. She has become even the national speaker on disaster medicine and ethics. And I recently was invited to a conference where she gave a talk about ethics and disasters. Now, some of the families, especially after reading your book and finding some of the backstories of some of the more awake, interactive patients, how are they dealing with all this? 
you referred a little earlier, and we haven't really discussed it too much, this question of intentionality, which is really where the whole legal question and the ethical question, they revolve around what was the intention. Was it to hasten death or was it to comfort? And I think that comforts somebody who's already actively dying, perhaps. And it may be the case that some of the patients may have been close to death, may not have had a long time to live. There were others, however, who, according to the people who took care of them until they were told to leave, these medicines were administered, who were believed to certainly have a chance at survival. And the one that's talked about most is Emmett Everett, who was a 61-year-old man, I believe. He was a doting grandfather. He was alert throughout the disaster, expressing the desire to be rescued, fed himself breakfast, asked his nurses, are we ready to rock and roll today? He was one of the patients who was found with these drugs in his body. What was the situation with him? Well, according to the nurses I spoke with and the people who were interviewed by the investigators, he was very heavy set, and he was a man who was obese and had disabilities. He was partially paralyzed, could not walk, and this was now a hospital that didn't have a working elevator. And according to the people who were interviewed and who I spoke with, the discussion was, we didn't think we could get him out. They would have had to carry him downstairs, and they were worried, maybe even if they got him, then all the way up to the top of the helipad, which was quite a distance away, would a helicopter even take him? So, not everybody was on the verge of death. It was interesting. Even some of the patients who didn't have a good prognosis, what their family members said was, I valued that time. Whatever time was left, my mom, my dad had a right or just as much value. There should have been an effort to save them, not give up on them. My mom volunteered all her life with this charity or that. She gave a lot to society, so why would society just give up on her? So whereas you might imagine... Some people said those loved ones, they should be grateful that this was done, that their sick family member was given an easy way out of life and didn't have to suffer. Very much, almost to a single person who I interviewed who was a family member, they disagreed with that. It's interesting, somebody I recently spoke with who's a doctor said, People suffer in a hospital all the time. You know, people are uncomfortable, and we don't just euthanize them. And that, that was sort of how the family members felt about it. They weren't grateful. They wanted a chance to see their loved ones again. Some of them were in the hospital, were ushered out, and were never consulted about what was about to happen. So the aftermath of your book, I've talked with so many physicians who've read your book, and it's really led to so many lively discussions. Has there been aftermaths for you that they've kind of talked about bringing this to medical schools and having people actually talk through maybe a thing that will never happen again, you know, in the United States. I think it lends itself to for healthcare workers to talk about this. Have you had any of that happen? It's really great to see. Hopefully, as you said, this won't occur again, but the epilogue talks about a lot of things that have happened since Katrina, and we are really terribly vulnerable in terms of our medical infrastructure. Hospitals, it may surprise some people, but we aren't required to protect or retrofit buildings. In many cases, for things like earthquakes or floods, obviously new construction now is held to a higher standard, but it's incredibly expensive to retrofit. It is unpopular when legislators try to require that. And so we have a vulnerable infrastructure. And this obviously is the infrastructure that we need most at a time of disaster. So I think it is hard for us as medical professionals, for medical administrators to face a potential worst case scenario or even just a bad scenario. And we see with things like Hurricane Sandy, where there was loss of power, where we did have to evacuate places quickly. And we do need to gain this out. We do need to constantly be practicing. Preparedness isn't something you can just spend some money, draw up a plan, and stick it on a shelf. It really has to be a consistent process. It has a lot to do with relationships, with knowing who to call and what resources exist, 
things that you aren't necessarily using every day. So I love the fact that I hear medical schools, public health departments, hospital administration are using the book, are having book groups are requiring people to read it because that's really one of the reasons why I wrote Five Days at Memorial with the idea that it's almost like a moment-by-moment reconstruction of how you go from Monday morning being a normal functioning hospital to Thursday morning, this decision made to inject a large number of patients with these drugs and then their subsequent deaths. So how does that happen and how did things fall apart? And then there's some examples of places in New Orleans where this didn't happen and where there were better outcomes and what can we learn from that. Obviously, it's a small sample size, but it's an important case, I think, to study. And if you think through it in your head before you ever go through it, that's what these people who worked really bravely in in that disaster and even the people who died, I think their legacy is that we have the opportunity to learn from them and from this experience. And to help prevent what happened from happening again, whether it's just the suffering or the hard work or the difficult times that people went through, all the way to deaths that maybe could have been avoided with a different kind of preparedness or mindset. So what are your takeaways from doing the research? I think just to boil down a few of them, preparedness, it's on three levels. We've got our infrastructure level, which some of us can affect decisions and how we invest money in in preparing buildings and levies. And then there's the organizational level. So a lot of people in hospital administration or who have a managerial role can think about how do I keep an organization functioning and leadership functioning in a disaster? Is it making sure that everybody sleeps? Is it having good communications? If the phones fail, can we have regular meetings that people know if I show up on the ER ramp at 7 a.m., there's going to be information. We're going to learn what's happening today. And then there's the individual level, and that's where any of us who might find ourselves in a disaster, which could be all of us, how can we be better prepared to make decisions that we'll want to look back on and be proud of, or at least feel we can defend when we're forced to face really difficult choices that are not of our own making. And I think that's where it's things like remembering that there's going to be a tomorrow, remembering that sometimes when it seems like there's only two really bad choices, if we can step back, if we can have that situational awareness, which is basically what are the needs that I'm faced with and what are the resources that I can bring in to help meet those needs, sometimes there may be a creative solution that's really hard to see at first. And there are multiple, multiple examples of that in the book where it seemed like there were only bad choices and in some cases people found creative solutions. Everything from neonates who were up on the rooftop waiting for helicopters to show up. The helicopters couldn't take some of the equipment that these babies needed for life and a split-second decision by a doctor to come up with an alternative, handbag the babies who relied on oscillators, handbag them and got them to safety and saved every single one of the babies. So it's about preparing and thinking in advance, but also being flexible in the moment. And that's really hard to do. Sometimes you go through a disaster before you learn that. But if people can learn that from this book and take that away and take a moment if you're in a crisis to think that way, it's really hard. But if you can do it, I think it can be super helpful. Well, Sherry, thank you so much for being on the program. The book is Five Days of Memorial. Thank you. Thanks. This is Dr. John Russell. If you missed any part of this discussion, please visit reachmd.com slash book club to download this podcast and others in the series. Thanks for listening.